we are in 1 John 3, and we stopped at verse 10, meaning we'll start at verse 11. And I need to warn you, at our present pace, we will never finish 1 John. It's just, it's just not going to happen, I don't think. Anyway, well, I'm hoping the Lord comes back before we do. Let's put that away. 1 John 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This text isn't addressing what it means to love non-Christians, although we are to do that. Jesus himself was called the friend of sinners, and we are to be the same. We are to even love those that hate us. John MacArthur made the statement, if we want to love as God loves, then we have to love those that hate us. Let that sink in. These verses from, first John, from John's first epistle are addressing not loving non-Christians, but loving Christians, loving our Christian brothers and sisters. Now, the, the uh, command to love one another, the imperative is in verse 11. Uh, in verse 12, John presents an example of someone that refused to love. He refused to even love his own biological brother. Verse 12, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one. Satan is the wicked one. And Cain was a child of Satan. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. Cain's brother was Abel. This phrase, murdered his brother, could also be translated as murdered his brother through slitting his throat. Murdered is a form of a Hebrew word that meant to butcher or to slaughter. That word was used to describe animals that uh, were slaughtered in a sacrificial offering. Remember, no human had ever died before this. No human had ever been murdered prior to this murder. So how did Cain know how to murder his brother? It's because Cain had seen his parents sacrifice animals to God. He had seen his father slit the sacrificial animal's throat. So he just replicated that movement on his brother. Then John presents a question. Verse 12 continues. And why did he murder him? What was the reasoning? Why did Cain murder Abel? Because his works were evil and his brothers righteous. Cain was Satan's child. He was evil and he committed evil. Abel was God's child. He was righteous and he practiced righteousness. And Abel's righteousness commented on and condemned Cain's evilness, and that upset Cain. He was resentful. These statements we just read are a direct reference to Genesis 4, where the historical account of Cain and Abel is recorded. So let's stop here at verse 12. Since we're not in any hurry to get through this book, let's stop at verse 12 and let's read more specifics from that account in Genesis. Genesis 4, Genesis 4, verse 1, now Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Remember, God created the first man from the ground. And then God created the first woman out of material from man's side. So based on the information we have, this was the first human birth. 
And the first child ever born was named Cain. Notice it is said the first man knew the first woman. This word knew in the ancient Hebrew language is the word yada. Um, Tony, we probably will correct me afterwards, but that's what the computer said. So I tried, Tony. Uh, he's our resident Hebrew scholar, so I have to consult him. Um, but that Hebrew word yada meant intimate personal relations. And in this context, because the context determines often the meaning of a word, in this context, yada was used as an ancient euphemism to describe intimate sexual relations. And that's how it is used here in verse 1. So Adam and Eve had sexual relations, and Cain was the result of that. Verse 2, then she, the first woman Eve, bore again, meaning Eve gave birth a second time, and this time his brother Abel. The first woman's second child was another son, and she named him Abel. That Hebrew name Abel means breath, breath. And because of that ancient word's connection to other ancient Sumerian words, some theologians argue that the name Abel meant something more specific than just breath. Some believe it meant a mere breath. A mere breath implies a shortness of life. Evangelist Billy Graham died in 2018 at age 99. And before his passing, someone asked him what shocked him the most after spending nine plus decades on this earth. What was the most shocking thing? And he said, quote, the brevity of life, meaning it shocked him to see just how soon life comes to an end. And those of us that are older understand that. As we age, time seems to move even faster. Verse 2 continues. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a tiller of the ground. Notice that Abel became a shepherd, and Cain became a farmer. Abel cared for livestock, and Cain raised crops. Now we understand that shepherding and farming are both necessary and honorable professions. And so the problem was not Cain's occupation. Verse 3, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. This is the first biblical mention of worship. Please notice both men were religious worshipers because both men offered God something. In a technical sense, no one is irreligious. All humans worship something. In primitive tribal regions, people worship the arrangement of the stars and galaxies. Some worship trees. Some worship particular animals. Some even create actual objects to worship called idols. In numerous ancient and modern cultures, people worship ancestors. Japan practiced ancestor worship until 1945. And then Japan banned that practice and made it illegal. In most Western societies, people worship position, fame, possessions, and celebrities. And some people worship themselves. Self-worshippers are called narcissists. 
Narcissism originated in an ancient Greek mythological legend. A man named Narcissus fell in love with his own image that he happened to see in his reflection in a pool of water. Narcissism is excessive self-love. Narcissism is essential self-worship. Some guys go to the gym. Uh, John, you've seen this. Go to the gym, and you know, notice gyms are just covered with mirrors. Well, there's a reason. Because these guys go to the gym and are constantly flexing in front of the mirrors. Just, it's, it ha- I mean, they just can't help themselves. And uh, the problem is some of them literally have nothing to flex. But uh, and it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, that is a form of self-worship. And this common, innate human ambition to worship something or worship someone has resulted in thousands of strange and bizarre religious movements. Verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Verse 5, But he, God, did not respect Cain and his offering. The inference is that because God wants worship from man, he instructed both Cain and Abel to bring him an offering, and both men did. God accepted Abel's offering, as we're going to see, but God rejected Cain's offering. Cain represents unacceptable worship, and that's the reason nothing positive in Scripture is ever said about Cain. Jude mentions Cain, Jude verse 11, is describing false teachers and said, woe to them, for they, those false teachers, have gone in the way of Cain. Other than his profession as a farmer, the only thing Cain did that we actually know about was the offering he brought to God. And remember, 1 John, we read earlier in verse 12, described that offering as something evil. That means unacceptable worship is considered evil. And that's extremely strong language. Verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and, notice the conjunction, and his offering. Now, notice that God respected and accepted both Abel and Abel's offering. It doesn't just read that God respected Abel's offering. It also reads that God respected Abel the person. So God did not just accept the offering, but he also accepted the offerer. It's interesting that the language Genesis uses has made that distinction. It mentions both Abel and then it mentions Abel's offering. Then notice that God made that same distinction about Cain. Verse 5, but he, God, did not respect Cain and, and his offering. So God did not respect and God did not accept both Cain and Cain's offering. In Cain's case, God rejected both the offering and the offerer. And what do these distinctions mean? What does the distinction between the offering itself and the offerer mean. It means God is concerned about both the act of worship and the attitude of the person behind that worshipful act. God is concerned about both the actual act of worship, the offering to him, 
and the attitude of the person, the offerer, the attitude of the one behind that worshipful act. Each man's attitude was demonstrated in what each man brought as an offering. Notice verse 4. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now notice, Abel brought to God the firstborn and fattest of his animals. The common opinion is it was probably from his sheep, Uh, since the principal sacrificial animal throughout the Old Testament was a lamb. So we assume it was a lamb he offered. The emphasis was on the quality of the offering. He brought the firstborn. He brought the fattest of the flock. Um, His attitude was that he wanted to give God his best because he felt that God deserved his best, and he does. Now notice Cain's attitude. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. The text doesn't tell us what particular crop Cain brought. It doesn't tell us he brought the first fruits of the crop. Now the first fruits meant the first part of the harvest that got ripe first. The first portion of the harvest that ripened first were considered the first fruits. And Throughout Scripture, God required the first fruits as an offering from His people. And the text doesn't tell us that these were the first fruits. The text just tells us that Cain brought something he had raised from the ground. And because it doesn't tell us more than that, it implies the inference is that Cain didn't bring the first fruits and he didn't bring the best he had raised. So Cain's attitude seemed to be that just anything was good enough for God. Just anything. Understand something. God deserves our best. God deserves our best offering. But that's not what we sometimes bring Him. Sometimes we bring God our leftovers, our leftover time, our leftover attention, our leftover schedule, our leftover finances, our leftover love. God has blessed us so much. And that's not how we should say thank you. The offerer's attitude does matter. On Sunday mornings, we're encouraged to sing. And uh, probably all of us can sing more than we do. Uh, It was interesting this morning, Barbara chose to sing uh, the, the last song we sang, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. I have never been able to sing that song through without crying. Never, not once. So I just gave up this morning and cried. I didn't even sing. But most often I try to sing the best I can. Um, But we can sing our lungs out in worship and praise to God. But if our heart is full of sin and ugliness, then our offering of praise will be just as unacceptable and just as evil as Cain's was. So God does care about our attitudes. Now let's address the offering itself. Cain's offering represented the religion of human self-achievement. The religion of human self-achievement. Cain had raised some crops. He brought some of that harvest to God and said, Here God, I did this. No one helped me. I raised these myself. I worked hard to raise these crops. So God, I hope you're pleased. Most modern people have adopted Cain's ancient approach to God. We do good deeds and we perform religious acts in an attempt to impress and please God. 
Cain was the prototype of the self-righteous unbeliever. I heard about a minister from another mainline denominational church, uh, a, a denomination that is apostatizing. There's a large exodus of churches leaving that denomination, and rightly so. Um, but this man from this congregation one Sunday morning stood up in front of his people, and he boasted, I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to show God my hands so God can see the cracks and calluses in my hands and see how hard I worked to get there. That's not unlike Cain's original offering. That's the religion of human self-achievement, and that's unacceptable to God. Now, Abel was different. Abel's offering represented the religion of substitutional sacrifice. Substitutional sacrifice. And notice this definition on the note sheet. The principle of substitutional sacrifice means an innocent substitute must be sacrificed on behalf of the sinner in order for him to receive forgiveness from sin. That's the essence of substitutional sacrifice. The sacrificial offering throughout the Old Testament God expected was that of an animal. The sacrificial offering God expected in the New Testament was the sacrificial offering of His Son Jesus as He presented Himself to the Father on the cross. Verse 5 continues, And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. His countenance fell means he seemed incredibly sad and dejected. Verse 6, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? Then notice God said, verse 7, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire, sin's desire, is for you. But you should, you should rule over it. He didn't. Meaning Cain could have been acceptable to God, just as Abel had been acceptable to God if Cain would have done the right thing. But Cain didn't do the right thing, and because he didn't, he was then susceptible to more sin and more trouble, and that's what happened in verse 8. Cain didn't listen to God. Cain was stubborn in his self-righteous resistance to God's instructions. He didn't demonstrate contrition. He didn't demonstrate repentance and remorse. He didn't regret bringing God less than his best. He didn't regret not bringing the innocent animal sacrifice God required of him. Instead, Cain was angry. He was angry at his brother Abel, and ultimately, he was angry at God. Verse 8, now Cain talked with his brother Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. It's unfortunate that the first human born was the same human that committed the first murder. This is how it happened. Notice verse 8 reads that Cain talked with Abel, his brother. No one knows where that conversation transpired, and no one knows what that conversation was about. But after that conversation, Cain killed his brother. And as we said earlier, it's possible that he slit his throat because he had seen that done so often to a sacrificial animal. 
because this was the first unjustifiable homicide, one commentator said, Cain invented murder. No, that's not what Jesus said. John 8, verse 44, Jesus said he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning. So murder originated in Satan himself. And then Satan inspired Cain to act on his idea. All murder originates in Satan. Cain had resentment toward both God and toward his brother, and that resentment morphed into murder. Notice the definition. Resentment is bitter indignation. And having been treated less than we feel we deserved. Resentment is a bitter indignation, a form of bitter anger, and having been treated less than we feel we deserved. Cain was the first case of human resentment. He resented God because God had rejected his sacrifice. He resented his brother because his brother's sacrifice was acceptable and his wasn't. Consider this formula. Resentment plus time equals bitterness. Resentment plus time equals bitterness. Resentment is a serious matter. Because if resentment isn't resolved, then over time it turns into bitterness. A graphic example of that, in the best-selling book called The Telling Room, the author describes the account of visiting his father's ancestral village in Sicily. Each day while he was there in the village, he happened to see a very old woman walking with her cane struggling up a steep road to get to the local cemetery. It was said that at that slow tortoise-like pace, the walk from her home to the cemetery and then back to her home took about six hours. She did that literally every day. She invested six hours to go to the cemetery. He was curious what sort of intense grief must have inspired her to do that difficult climb. Was it sadness over a deceased child? Was it sadness and grief over losing a husband? No. He inquired, and the locals told him she was driven by bitterness and hatred. A person who had wronged her in time past was buried in that cemetery. And she so hated this person and so hated what this person had done to her that each day she made that difficult climb to the cemetery to visit that antagonist grave and spit on it one more time. That's deep-rooted bitterness. And that's a true account. Resentment is counterproductive. If we're resentful towards someone that person doesn't feel our resentment so much. To some degree, it can. But we feel that resentment more because it eats us up on the inside. Hebrews 12, verse 15. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, by this root of of bitterness, many become defiled. Defiled meaning contaminated. Bitterness does cause trouble. And bitterness does affect others. Because bitterness is contagious. 
It's difficult to conceal resentment and bitterness, and so it rubs off onto others. Remember that saying, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch? That's not an old wives' fable. That's not an urban legend. That's a scientific fact. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, there were hundreds of thousands of species of mold that exist on plants and plant matter that spread through the air, water, and insects. So mold can easily move from one piece of fruit or vegetable to another if it's touching that other piece of fruit or vegetable. So one bad moldy apple can literally contaminate the other apples in the bunch. Resentment and bitterness is difficult to contain and confined to the inside of someone. So it comes out and contaminates others. Resentment and bitterness is poison for the soul. It eats away at someone. Bitterness is similar to drinking some poison ourselves and then waiting for the person we're resentful for toward to die. But if resentment and bitterness is the poison then forgiveness is the antidote. An article on the website called The Science of Us commented on forgiveness. This was an interesting account. It mentioned a scientific study that was done on forgiveness, and this research concentrated on animals forgiving one another. It seems scientists have observed conciliatory behavior in a number of different animal species, such as primates like mountain gorillas and chimps, who after confronting one another in an aggressive sense, often demonstrated endearing behavior like embracing one another or kissing the one that had participated in that confrontation. Scientists have observed that same behavior in non-primates, such as goats and hyenas. The only species to date that has been analyzed the only species that has failed to show outward signs of reconciliation are domestic cats. <laughs> Just as I suspected. <laughs> so when it comes to forgiveness, don't, don't be a cat. Some steps to resolving resentment hyphen bitterness. Step one recognize that we have resentment and bitterness. That is, if we do, if we don't, we don't. But if we do, recognize that. Admit that. Holding a grudge is the same as resentment. Refusing to forgive someone is the same as resentment. Being envious of something someone else has that we don't is resentment. Public embarrassment and humiliation can result in resentment as can being taken advantage of. Resentment can result from feeling like the object of discrimination. Resentment can result from someone else being promoted over us, from having personal achievements go unrecognized, and from personal rejection, and on and on. The sportscaster Howard Cosell, those of us that are older remember this, made famous the line, quote, telling it like it is telling it like it is. According to that line, 
if we admit our own resentment, if we admit our own bitterness, if we do admit that to ourselves and we are telling it like it is, that though is an extremely difficult step for some people because pride won't permit them to do that. Step two, confess our resentment and bitterness to God. Now, we've already commented on confession in an earlier message, 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've addressed this before. That Greek word translated as confess is homologio. Logio meaning to say something. Homo meaning the same. So homologio means to say the same thing. So to confess our sin to God, to homologio our sin to God, means we say the same thing about our sin that God does. That means we actually name the particular sin. And we verbalize a strong distaste and hatred for that sin. We have to adopt God's attitude toward that sin. Our resentment is first a sin against God. So we must confess that resentment and bitterness to Him. And nothing else matters until we do. A third step, and we're going to spend most of our time here. If the person we're resentful and bitter toward is actually guilty of an offense, then forgive them in a positional sense and wait for them to confess their fault to us so we can then forgive them in a transactional sense. There are two categories of forgiveness mentioned in this step. If the person we're resentful toward, the person we're bitter toward, is actually guilty of an offense, and sometimes he or she is not. If so, though, then forgive them in a positional sense and wait for them to confess their offense and fault to us so we can then forgive them in a transactional sense. In the Genesis account we just read, the first murder victim did not commit a sin or an offense. He was innocent of any wrongdoing. He did what he did independent of his brother in offering his sacrifice to God. He offered God something acceptable. He committed a righteous act. He did what God required from him. But Cain was resentful of his brother because he was envious of his brother's success. His brother had something he didn't have, and that was God's acceptance and favor. Now, some people contend that if there's an interpersonal conflict, such as between Cain and Abel, if there's that conflict, then it's a two-way street. Both parties contribute to the problem. Both parties are guilty to some degree. And most often that is the case, especially in marriage. But there are some exceptions. And Cain was one of those exceptions. This is 100% on Cain. Abel did not contribute to this problem. Abel just did what he did that God accepted, and his brother reacted as he shouldn't have. Now, notice this step comes after we have addressed our own resentment. We should address our own wrongdoing first before we address someone else's wrongdoing. That's Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. Now, let me, let me uh, define these categories of forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness occurs when an offender confesses an offense. 
He confesses his wrongdoing and offense and then receives forgiveness from the offender. Transactional forgiveness occurs when an offender confesses an offense and then receives forgiveness from the offended. If the offended person confronts the offender about the offense, if he confronts him and then that person confesses to that offense, or if for some reason the offended person doesn't confront the offender, but the offender's conscience bothers him enough to come to the person he offended and confess that offense. In each case, notice, a confession has been made. And so forgiveness is to be extended to the one that made that confession and was seeking forgiveness. It's called transactional forgiveness because a transaction has transpired between the offender and the offended. And that transaction is called forgiveness. There has to be a transaction, though. The offended person has to wait for the offender to come to him, unless he's gone to him. But he has to wait on him to admit his offense and seek forgiveness. On a personal basis, forgiveness of the offender releases that person from the guilt and shame related to the offense. Now, in a societal sense, it's different. If a serious criminal act has been committed, for example, multiple felonies have been committed, and the offending person has been arrested, and he's incarcerated, then the state is still responsible to exercise justice and punish the offender. The state is responsible to do that. We are not. We are different. The offended person can still relieve the offender of the personal consequences of his offense if he confesses to his wrongdoing and seeks forgiveness. This is the reason there are people uh, on death row, uh, and there are relatives of the victim, uh, of, of someone who's committed murder, relatives of the victim who've gone to prison and forgiven that person. They, they can have forgiveness. But the state still should do what the state is required to do. And I should add, without going into it, I believe the death penalty is a biblical concept taught in both the Old and New Testaments. I, that's all I'm going to say because I don't want to get too involved. To forgive someone in, in a transactional sense means that if the offending person confesses his offense to us, whether we've gone to him or he's come to us, and if he wants forgiveness, then we are to immediately transact that forgiveness toward that person. Procrastinated forgiveness is not an option to us. This excuse, and I've heard this often, someone's been hurt, it's, it's a serious hurt, it's, it's understandable that this person is hurt, and this is a very serious offense that's been uh, wrong, that's been committed toward them, and then this person comes in contrition and says, I am so sorry what I did was so unacceptable, please, please forgive me. And I've heard people say, I'm not ready, I need more time, I, I'm not ready to forgive. People, that is an unbiblical response to someone seeking forgiveness. And the reason is because that's not how God forgives. Imagine if we confess a sin to God, we to go to God with a contrite heart, with sincere repentance, and we mean business, and we say, oh God, I have sinned, I so regret my sin, God, this is heinous, and I'm so sorry, please forgive me. And God's response is, uh, I can't do that. I'm not ready to forgive you just yet. 
That doesn't happen. God forgives instantly, and no matter how many times we go to him for forgiveness, he forgives us. That's why Jesus told Peter we are to forgive someone seven times 70. Seven is the number for completeness. Seven times 70 is representative of an infinite number of times. God transacts forgiveness in an instant, and so should we. Second category is called positional forgiveness. Positional forgiveness occurs once the offense has been committed. It occurs at the time of the offense. Because from that point on, the offended person is to assume an attitude or position of forgiveness toward the offender. So it occurs, the instant the offense occurs, someone should uh, engage positional forgiveness. Because from that point on, the, the offended person is to assume an attitude or position of forgiveness toward the offender. Now, transactional forgiveness, remember, isn't possible until the offender confesses his offense to the offended. Nothing can be transacted if both people, both parties aren't involved. But until then, until transactional forgiveness can be enacted, the offended person can still hold on to an attitude or a position of forgiveness. And one of the reasons why we should engage in positional forgiveness is so that resentment and bitterness doesn't build up inside of us. Jesus exercised parental forgiveness on the cross. Remember Jesus, we have recorded seven times Jesus spoke from the cross. And in one of those times, Jesus prayed for his executioners. These were the Roman legionnaires that brutalized him throughout the night as he was being tried. These were the men that nailed him to that cross. And what did Jesus do? He said, he prayed for those men and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, they're ignorant. They don't know what they're doing. Please forgive them. Jesus forgave those that sinned against him, even though none of them confessed their wrongdoing to him. Transactional forgiveness never happened. But Jesus assumed a posture and position and attitude of forgiveness from the cross. Ephesians 4.32. This verse is convicting, extremely convicting to me. Paul said, and be kind to one another. What would our society resemble if we all practiced more kindness? I don't think we'd even recognize ourselves. I said to someone recently, I said something, uh, and this person responded, that wasn't kind. And I go, well, it was kind of mean, but I guess that's not kind. And, of course, it caused me to think. And it's not that I'm, I'm never kind. That, that's not the problem. It's not that I'm never kind. Because I am extremely kind. Sometimes. The problem is I'm not consistently kind. And that's probably your problem. I mean, we need to be more consistent in demonstrating, manifesting kindness to one another. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Not hard-hearted, not cold-hearted, 
tender-hearted, meaning compassionate. There were some people in this congregation that have compassion just oozing out of the pores of their body. They're just super compassionate. We need to strive for that. And then Paul said, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Someone said Christians should be the most forgiving because Christians have been the most forgiven. It's extremely difficult for me if I stop and think, and that's a big problem. If I stop and think, it's extremely difficult for me to be resentful towards someone if I consider how much God has forgiven me for. I said this first service. I think I should repeat it. Um, It's extremely important to me to be right with God and then be right with all those that call themselves Christians. I'm to be right with God and all those Christian brothers and sisters that I have associations with. So if I have wronged, if I have sinned against, if I have offended someone in this room, and you aren't able to let love cover that wrong or offense, you just can't. Meaning it continues to bug you and bother you, and it's, it's upsetting. Then please come to me in private. Just come to me. Tell me what that offense was. Tell me about that sin or wrongdoing. And don't be concerned about my feelings. If I cannot handle hearing the truth from someone, then I'm unqualified to even stand in this pulpit. If there's a chance there was a misunderstanding, often there is a misunderstanding. If there's a chance there is, then I might offer an explanation. I might not offer an explanation. I might feel that offering an explanation could be rationalizing to some degree, and that's not good, so I might not do that. I promise not to be defensive, and I will apologize profusely for the offense I have committed and beg to be forgiven. And there are people in this room who have seen that from me, so I am capable. I don't want to give someone cause to struggle with potential resentment or bitterness. Remember, Christian, if we have been sinned against, if we have been wrong, if we have been offended, then we have two biblical options, just two. One, let love cover it. That's 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Let love cover it. Something I'm wanting to do more and more, I'm becoming more and more immune to being offended. Three Sundays ago, a couple visited our church, and... uh, it was like four days after that. I got a letter from them. It was not a nice letter. Um, I thought that's unusual. Visit church once and you feel compelled to write the pastor a nasty letter. I've never done that, but he felt it was necessary. It, it wasn't kind. It was actually uh, misrepresentative of what I had said. And for a slight nanosecond, I thought, I should respond to this and just tell him that if he would have actually listened to the sermon, then he wouldn't have, you know, come up with these erroneous conclusions about what I had said. But I thought, no, that's silliness. That's not right. Just let love cover it. He's not the first critic. He won't be the last. And so I didn't respond. Uh, But I'm, I'm wanting to be more and more immune to that. And I'm practicing this 
part as much as possible. I can't, I can't even remember where I've gone to someone and said, look, you hurt me, you offended me, you wronged me. I have the right to do that. But I just can't remember doing it. I just, I want to let love cover more, cover more of those infractions committed against me. Second option, though, we can confront the offender. We can confront them in love. Matthew 18, verse 15, and subsequent verses. I have a book in my office called Caring Enough to Confront. I mean, if someone sinned against us, we can talk to God about it, and we can go to that person if we can't love, love, cover it, and speak to them about it. The problem is, I see sometimes someone is offended, and they go and talk to other people. They talk to every person except the person that offended them, who probably doesn't even know he or she offended them. But they talk to everybody else. In other words, they completely circumvent this biblical mandate to go to the person. You know what that's called? That's called gossip. And that's unacceptable. If you cannot live love, cover something, then you're obligated biblical to go to someone in love who's offended you, hurt you, and correct it. Correct it. Now, if that isn't corrected, there's a procedure in Matthew 18. Next time you go back with two or three more, and it just continues, it's actually considered part of church discipline. If we've been hurt, then what we need to do is go to the person that caused the problem, or go to the person that's part of the problem, or we can speak to someone who's part of the solution to the problem, but if we speak to anyone else, that's not our role. Number four, Forgive and remember we forgave them. Forgive and remember we forgave them. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Love does not behave rudely. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love thinks no evil. There are 16 specific qualities of agape love mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Some time ago, we did an entire three-month-long series on that section. And the ninth characteristic mentioned in that listing is the phrase, love thinks no evil. In the Greek language, this phrase, thinks no evil, is a singular word. That word is logizomai. Remember that word logizomai. Because if you remember it, then you can say you know a little Greek. Logizomai was a word an ancient accountant would use. It was a word a bookkeeper would use. It meant to keep a mathematical account. Logizomai was a word that was used to enter the amount of an item into a financial ledger. So that item wouldn't be forgotten. So if a credit or debit was put down onto paper, this person could then deal with it at a later time. That logizomai was a running record of what someone owed someone else or a record of what someone else owed them. But Paul said, notice, Paul said, love is not like that. Love is not logizomai. And that means love doesn't keep books on all the bad that has been done to it. Love never keeps an account or a running record of offenses that have been committed against it. That particular component to agape love is not resentful, not revengeful, not bitter, not backbiting, not brooding over the wrong that has been done to it, not vindicative, not hateful, not harboring grudges, not holding someone accountable for a wrong or an offense. Unlike the woman 
who had unknowingly contracted rabies. She'd been bitten, but she wasn't, she didn't think it was a big deal, but her condition had worsened and she ignored the symptoms of this disease until the latter stages. So after she had gotten much worse, she made a doctor's appointment and after the examination, the doctor shook his head and said, ma'am, I'm, I'm so sorry, but there's nothing we can do for you at this point. Uh, the rabies are just too far advanced. I would suggest you get your affairs in order just as soon as possible. He then left the room to procure some medication for pain. And after he came back, he noticed she, was, uh, she had been dotting, jotting down a list of names. He said, I didn't realize you would start on my advice so soon. So are these the names of some of the beneficiaries of your estate? She said, no, 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 doctor. These are names of some of the uh, people I intend to bite. <laughs> That's logizomai. And we are not too logizomai. Sometimes we use the phrase, forgive and forget. We've all said that, which is not altogether correct. Unless someone has a severe case of amnesia or a disease such as dementia, then it's not possible to literally forget what might have happened to us. But we are, to, we are able to forget in the sense that at the times that wrong or offense comes to our mind, we remember that we've already forgiven that offense. We remember. That means we're to forget about an offense as it relates to holding a grudge. We're to forget about it as it relates to being resentful because we're remembering we forgave it. And that's the more accurate meaning of the phrase forgive and forget. It is sad. I have, see, I have done this. I have done this. Hope you can testify to this. Um, she's probably never done it, but I have. Sometimes a Christian gets to the end of his rope uh, with someone and in a fit of frustration, he begins to recite all the wrongs this person has done to him in the past. He doesn't necessarily get hysterical, but he does get historical. Sometimes someone can store up all the accumulated wrongs committed against him, and then all at once this person just starts spitting up all this stuff he's kept pinned up inside him all this time. And then just like a verbal computer printout, he says, remember, you did this, and remember, you did that, and don't forget you did this, and you did that. That's logizomai. And that's a manifestation of someone's unresolved internal resentment and bitterness. Reverend Peter Miller was a Baptist pastor during the American Revolution. Miller resided in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. And one of his closest friends was General George Washington. This is prior to him becoming president. In that same town of Ephrata, there was also a spiteful troublemaker. He was a problem. Town he caused, he was stirred up trouble all the time. His name was Michael Whitman. And uh, because of his lifestyle that was so antithetical to that of the reverends, he expended himself to oppose and humiliate Reverend Miller. Then without notice, Mr. Whitman was arrested for treason and sentenced to die. Now, Miller heard about that. He didn't understand. I mean, this man was a troublemaker, and this man was, you know, would slander him at any opportunity, and he wasn't a good man at all, but he couldn't imagine what he had done that would warrant such a conviction that he was scheduled to die. So the Baptist preacher set out to Philadelphia to beg for the life of his chief 
antagonist. But he didn't have a horse. So he walked that entire 70 miles on foot across some rough terrain. 70 miles. Once he was there, Miller petitioned his close friend, General George Washington, and begged him to save Mr. Whitman from the hangsman's noose. And General Washington, after a period of thought, said, I'm, I'm so sorry, Pastor, but I can't grant you the life of your friend. The preacher said, no, 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 General, you don't understand. Whitman's not my friend. He's the bitterest enemy I have. He literally hates me. George Washington was shocked to hear that and said, Reverend, do you mean to tell me you walked 70 miles to save the life of someone that is your avowed enemy? The preacher said, yes, sir, that's what I did. Washington said, that puts a different perspective on these matters. He thought, he paused, and said, I think I will grant your request. And Whitman was acquitted, and he was freed. The next morning, both the preacher and the convict walked together back home 70 miles to Ephrata, Pennsylvania. But once the men arrived home, things had changed between them. The men had become friends. There is no hurt that can't be healed. There's no fence that can't be fixed. God can take people that struggle with one another. If we would refuse to and reject this sin of resentment and bitterness and would do all we could to resolve whatever it is that is between us, then we can fulfill verse 11 and love one another as God has loved us. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for what we've learned. I hope it's made sense. I hope it was clear. But now we, we come to the time where we are to practice what we've heard. This is our homework. We're to be kind. We're to be tender-hearted. We're to forgive one another even as God in Christ forgave us. I have failed on all counts multiple times. I'm embarrassed and ashamed to admit that. So God, help me. Help me. Please help me to do better. I must do better. These people deserve it, and you demand it. So I pray that you will help me to improve in this area. Help me never to repeat the sin of Cain, to never offer you an offering that comes from an unacceptable heart. So God, help me to be who you have created me to be and who you want me to be. And I thank you. And I pray others will do the same. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.